0: Takeaway, an artisan podcast from McKenna's Guides, using Skype, iPhone, Audition, Twisted Wave, Sony headphones, and of course our landline, talking to chefs and producers to bring you food stories from Ireland. Food
1: writing is generally seen as a rather nice preoccupation, the kind of thing that brings you nice things to eat in the weekend magazines and nice places to visit where you'll find nice food. This is all true, but there also has been ever since food writing began, a tradition of dissent, of people looking critically and quizzically at what we eat and how it's produced. This goes all the way back to the days when Upton Sinclair revealed what actually happened in the Chicago stockyards, and of course reached to zenith with Rachel Carson's groundbreaking Silent Spring. For the last two decades, the most singular investigative writer about food, the the person best expressing dissent against the prevalent food industries, has been Joanna Blythman. Miss Blythman is a petite, blonde lady who has lived in Edinburgh all her life. She's very well-spoken, very modest and unassuming. But her books over the last two decades have dealt a series of body blows to the food industry. Her new book, Swallow This, Perhaps her best book, I think, is no exception. In it, she explores things like pale soft exudative and uses, comes up with terms like polydimethylsiloxane. You might wonder what on earth that's got to do with the food we eat. Swallow This reveals exactly what it has to do with what we eat. Uh, Joanna Blythman, your first book, The Food We Eat, was published on the 19th of February 1996. Your sixth book, Swallow This, has just been published on the 26th of February 2015. How have things changed in the food industry in the last 19 years?
0: Well, um, quite a lot has happened. I think back when I wrote The Food We Eat, um, the, uh, we were kind of new about additives and e-numbers and we were concerned about a number of things, uh, but it was kind of relatively easy then to see which foods were processed and which weren't. What's happened in the last decade that's made a huge difference is that the food industry has has set about this this campaign or this. Um, uh, action which is called clean label and its purpose has been to remove from labels all those long sounding technical names you know things like carboxymethylcellulose or mono and diglycerides of fatty acids to kind of get them off the label and replace them with others that sound better uh, but the problem is that the same the replacements have to do the same job for fat food manufacturers they have to colour foods, flavour foods, preserve them, uh, etc. So I'm not convinced that the substitutes are are really an improvement. But the fact is that if you pick up many processed foods nowadays, they don't sound as bad as they used to.
1: So, Joanna, it doesn't come as a surprise to you then that uh, in the United States, uh, Nestle, uh, quickly followed by Hershey, have announced that they're going to remove all artificial flavours and colours from their confectionery um, by 2015.
0: No, it doesn't. I mean, because what what the food industry does is it tries to... Um, lay our fears so on the front of a pack of you know say biscuits or you know some meat product you'll see lots of tick lists and guarantees nowadays so it's things like you know low in sugar uh, low carb um, free from artificial colourings free from artificial flavourings no fake this and that and that reads really well and a lot of people take a lot of comfort from that and they think well this product must be fine and then you turn over the label and the old e numbers that you used to see quite often and, and often a paragraph of them on processed foods just just tend not to be there any longer and they've been replaced by things that sound a lot better and obviously bragging that they don't use uh, uh, artificial colorings will be a big strategy for uh, large food corporations who you know that have major problems uh, convincing people that they're selling good food that will be a big part of their their um strategy to to essentially confuse us um about the provenance of their products and to make us think they're better and that we don't need to worry about them nowadays
1: in the introductory section of the book you advise that people should have a personal precautionary principle a ppp yes how how would that work for consumers in real time
0: well I, th- I think we all like to think that that, that there's some some sort of um, silvery haired very scientific sage regulators um, looking out for our best interests and that we can rely on them you know they wouldn 't allow anything into the food chain that would be bad for us or dangerous or not good for our health or nutritionally questionable and um, what i 've realized from my researches is that actually. There is no such thing. Um, the problem is that um, the uh, regulatory authorities are lobbied very, very heavily by the big food uh, multinational companies. Something like twenty to 30,000 lobbyists in Brussels alone knocking doors in the European Commission and you know, influencing European MEPs. And um, often on the the so-called government, well, the government committees, where there are experts who make decisions about levels of what is considered to be safe, uh, a a safe level for a chemical in our food, Um, these are people who often in their day job are taking grants and getting money from companies Uh, that have a very vested interest in seeing their products commercialized. So as a result, my my idea is that we have to operate a personal precautionary principle. And that is the idea that, you know, if you don't understand what it is, if you would not have that ingredient in your uh, store cupboard, then don't buy it. So my philosophy is is quite simple. It's to avoid processed food, um, buy whole ingredients in their raw or unprocessed state and then cook them yourself from scratch um, and that most of the time is, is, is how I operate and I think it, with a very sophisticated food industry that's very adept at pulling the wool over our eyes this is, this is a, a very sort of wise way to, to, to um, look after your health and also obviously the deliciousness of, your, of what you eat.
1: One of the things that emerges from Swallow This is the sheer scale of industrial food production. You compare it at one point and say uh, a food plant is not really a place that would people would associate with food, it's more actually like a car manufacturing plant.
0: That's absolutely right. I mean, we, you know, obviously um, the, the factory food industry, the food manufacturers do not have doors open days. Um, uh, they're not really wanting the public to know about what the the reality of food manufacturing is and um, what I I mean obviously I've seen inside some plants and I've spoken to people who work there and they all tell me the same thing that when you work there you really uh, don't want to eat anything that comes out of that factory. I mean the ones I I have seen look somewhere between a sort of oil refinery come uh, major sort of car, plant, um, lots of automated lines, people um, wearing headphones, uh, you know, uh, mufflers so, so their hearing isn't damaged, uh, hard hats, freezing cold, a really alienating, thankless place to work. And um, many of those people are working 12-hour shifts at a time for not much more than the minimum wage. Um, I don't know how they do it. I certainly wouldn't have the stamina. And um, But it's this idea, you know, food manufacturers and retailers like to give us this story that, um, you know, ready-made food is just like a domestic kitchen, only scaled up. And what I saw was that it's absolutely nothing like a, a, a domestic kitchen. Um, it's, it really is like a very automated, highly, highly um, uh, manufactured system, which is thoroughly... Industrial.
1: I mean, the scale uh, that you mention in the book, factories that can produce 10 tons of chicken ticker?
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, well, these factories are really big, and what you have to realise is that many food manufacturers aren't. Actually, as many of them in as you might think, uh, they tend to be very concentrated. So many, um, several food retailers will often use the same food manufacturer to make their product. So you'll get a company that perhaps manufacturers lasagna for one chain and, uh, ch- uh, you know, lasagna, slightly similar, but, but pretty samey for another chain. And because time is money and because manufacturers are forced by the supermarkets to give them very low price um, the supermarkets won't pay uh, properly for the food. Then they're constantly trying to get the the maximum throughput through these factories in a time window. And men, many of them just never close down. I mean, they work twenty four hours a day. A lot of people in in food uh, manufacturing factories are working in uh, are working night shift. Um, But they don't close and at one minute it's, you know, um, uh, Tesco's uh, chicken tikas that are going down the line and then the next... A uh, line is uh, as the chicken tikka, That's how it operates, and it's all about um, the only sort of where the profits are for the manufacturers is in the sheer number of of products that they that they can they can produce. It's not there isn't a decent margin on them. There's nothing to encourage them to take time and care and do things in small batches. The system only makes money for them if they really churn out uh, food in in a, in a thoroughly industrial way.
1: One of the things that um, most surprised me when I read Swallow This was the food industry's devotion to what we used to call margarine. Um, You actually refer to its modern iteration, uh, low-fat spread, as the family pet. Why is the food industry so devoted to mixing oil and water?
0: Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, the thing about butter is that butter is really not a highly processed food. You know, it's churned cream. And it's quite an, in food manufacturing terms, it's an expensive ingredient. And the key thing about food manufacturers is is if you ask a food technologist, um, their role is to try and look at the expensive ingredients and cut them down. Uh, and replace them with something that is cheaper to use and therefore more profitable. So um, in the case of margarine and spreads, what these are, I like to think of them as forced marriages. You have two elements that we'd never come together water and oil and the broker in this uh, the sort of arranger is uh, an emulsifier some kind of starch or emulsifier which will bind these two very uh, unlikely uh, uh, partners in this sort of slippery oily uh, allegiance and then of course what you have then when you've kind of mixed those three elements together then you have this stuff that looks Grey and sort of really unappetizing and very unpleasant, so you then have to add coloring uh, to make it give it a sort of healthy buttery shade of yellow so I always think that margarine uh, and spreads are, are the the most thoroughly synthetic uh, products, but the food industry loves them, and unfortunately our our regulators our our so called health gurus do as well i mean the the british u k food standards agency actually is still recommending that people reduce butter and substitute low-fat spreads instead. Of course, low-fat spreads are, are, are classic value-added foods, you know, because you can say with olive oil and that means you can add another 50p to each tub. So it's, it's um, just like a blank canvas to which, with a few different additive twists and turns, uh, food manufacturers can, can add on profit.
1: You mentioned there that the f- regulators, um, and one of the things that your book shows is that the regulators effectively seem to echo the interests of the food industry. I mean, it's a well-known secret that the in the White House, the Obamas eat organic food, and it's a well-known secret that David Cameron and his family eat organic food, but how come that message is never echoed by government departments?
0: Well, I think... Uh first of all you have to realize that um a lot of there's there's this revolving door basically between um the would-be regulators and the food industry. So if 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 many of the people, for example, on the food standards agency board, many of those people will be picked from the food industry, they'll have strong food industry connections, and many of the the, the, the employees will actually walk out of a of a job in the food standards agency and straight into a, a job with a large food company or a supermarket. So there's an unhealthily close relationship. On the kind of organic point of view, this the, the, the schism between what politicians do in their personal lives and what they do up front, um, is that I think uh, they're cowards, really, and it takes a lot to stand up to big food businesses. They're enormously powerful and, you know, they'll have the sort of business uh, and the financial people breathing down their neck and saying, oh, I don't want to make an enemy of these people because they're, they, you know, they're employing so many people, they're going to open a factory here. Um, they, you know, we're making a lot of profit for, from from having them in the country. This is supporting the economy and this is very the case, very much the case with tesco um, you know the, the 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 uk government i imagine irish government took the attitude to just welcome them because they're such a successful british industry and it's not our job to knock them uh, but then of course some of these you know we see with tesco that that it's Uh, fortunes are reversed but I think um, for I've yet to come across a politician who's got the nerve to say stand up to the likes of Nestle, PepsiCo, Unilever or any of the big supermarket chains Uh, they just don't see that as a role.
1: One of the consequences that you deal with in your book is the creation of a sort of fear of natural foods um, and the persistent message that kitchens are dangerous places, havens for bacteria um how has the food industry managed to put across a message so powerfully that it effectively terrorizes people to actually use their own kitchens?
0: yeah, I think it 's interesting i mean it's it 's actually just really good, good marketing. you know you have to make yourself essential to people. How do you do that? by um, dropping the thought in their heads that what they're doing at home is dangerous. Um, and, you know, food safety has always been one of the arguments that the food industry have, have used for um, uh, including additives, things like preservatives, antioxidants in food. And I think one of the... And, and for doing things like washing salads and chlorine, you know, there's it, it presents a, a, a food safety argument. But actually... Uh, The truth is that what it's about is what the food industry calls shelf life extension. It's really not to do with safety. It's to do with um, uh, sort of having products that seem to last, that last seem to be fresh for longer than they naturally naturally would. And, uh, you know, one of the phrases I came across when researching my book was a fresh like quality. And that's now quite a common understanding in the food industry that, thing is not fresh that what you're trying to do is give it a fresh light quality and a number of te- technologies are used to that effect and i think um you know we've it's very interesting because for example on chicken where we're told you know um it's sort of the implication from the from the government um health uh uh you know safety advisors is sort of Stupid housewives, stupid consumers spreading Campylobacter around their kitchens. We have to tell them how to overcook their birds so that nothing can survive. And that's, again, it's sort of passing the buck for why is there all this contamination in chicken? Uh, that we buy in the supermarket and why is it the, the consumer's um, obligation to cook themselves out of a, of a food industry disaster. And, and I, I was shocked when I saw that the, the UK Food Standards Agency had an advert quite, quite recently which said uh, your kitchen sink has more germs than a toilet. There was a picture of a toilet there. And I mean, I think that's sheer, that's really trying to panic people. It's making them think, oh my goodness, everything to do with real food is just a seething mass of dangerous bacteria. And it's really the men in white coats um, in the supermarket and in behind the scenes who can, only they can make my food safe to eat. And of course, that's a lie, but it, it really makes for big food industry profits.
1: I mean the the content of swallow this is is frequently sobering and would I be right to suggest that um, the way in which you cheered yourself up was by writing so many individual zingers and one-liners? I, I was particularly taken by the smell of the bechamel in a factory that reminded you of regurgitated baby milk.
0: Yes, it did actually. It's funny because I I went to uh, I was in a slaughterhouse and uh, I found that the slaughterhouse was strangely actually was not that disturbing you know it smelled of blood and flesh but that wasn't a problem but I thought the most sickening smell I came across was this sort of white sauce gloop that goes on um you know lasagna supermarket lasagna it was thoroughly revolting but I did keep myself and there's a sort of black humour about Swallow This. I, ho- I hope it's there anyway. And I actually found some of the things the food industry t- said just absolutely hilarious, albeit in a terrifying way. And one of them was uh, the flavouring company that bragged, um, we make flavouring solutions for tastes you want to mask. And that was in the, 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 the masthead of, it, of its website. And it was this pride, you know, here we are, we'll, we, we let's, you know, let's collaborate collaborate and confusing the consumer Um, and I find them and they're uh, quite naive, almost. When you when I got behind the security wall into the food industry's sort of inner conversation, I I it was quite amusing to hear what what they say um, and that the, the kind of claims they make for the products uh, um, you know, things like if you use our product, you know, your in your margins will be will be increased by hundred percent, and you can. I my favorite one was a company that was bragging that there you could. Um, cut the amount of butter using this miracle product but still have an all butter label on it for for a premium you know upmarket product and it's that kind of uh, sort of just dishonesty which in the food industry is seen as as a you know a desirable skill it's seen as part of the business
1: swallow this joanna blythman's sixth book is published now by fourth estate
0: You've been listening to Takeaway, an artisan food podcast by McKenna's Guides.